Well, we are in the thick of it in the Isaiah sermon series. We are um, almost to the end of the first section of Isaiah. We have a couple sermons left, and then we take a little break for the summer, and we're going to be going through 1 Peter in the New Testament. Um, Today, we're looking at the topic of being alive in Christ for the glory of God. Alive in Christ is our motto here at Grace Church. It's on the front of your bulletin. Uh, This is a work of God in us. Uh, It's not our own doing, but we get to enjoy it. Have you ever heard the saying, out of the frying pan and into the fire? (laughs) This phrase speaks to how life can take us from hardship to even greater hardship. Now, the Christian life is much this way. How so? Well, last week we looked at how the the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, had the inhabitants of Jerusalem backed into a corner. They were at the end of their rope. They had tried before every other means of self-salvation. Finally, King Hezekiah turned in daring trust in God to deliver them. But that was just the beginning, the frying pan. See, we... When we turn in daring trust in God, his deliverance usually isn't instantaneous. And so we can go from out of the frying pan and into the fire. And so though it takes a daring trust to commit to God to deliver you, in the ongoing struggle, we need steadfast courage. Courage not to bail. Courage to trust God to do his good work in us. Courage to press on knowing that God's greater purposes for us must trump all of our self-serving desires. What we will see this morning in our sermon text is that the heat continues for Hezekiah and the people of God, and so they needed steadfast courage to persevere with hope. And Hezekiah will show us what this looks like, although I think you might have an idea. Let me begin with prayer. Father, We're thankful that you are a God who speaks, and so we know that we can know you. You are perhaps hidden in some ways, but you are very visible with eyes of faith. We thank you that in sending Jesus, you impart to us your mercy and kindness. We get to know you even better. We pray now as we study this scripture by your Holy Spirit that we would know you even more intimately and that this would change us all the more to be more alive in Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> do you know what a crucible is? I think you do. It's, it's a, a container that is usually like out of porcelain or something, and it's, and it's able to handle really, really high heat. And it's used for melting ore to turn it into metals like gold and silver. It, it burns off the impurities. When raw gold or silver is taken from the earth, it's, it's not yet shiny and pretty and attractive. Not, you're not going to hang it around your neck, right? It contains impurities mixed in with the precious metal, marring its beauty, hindering its usefulness. The Christian life is much like a crucible where God works in his people to purify them for his glory. God purposely uses the trials and difficulties we experience in life to refine us, 
to purify us. The Apostle Peter wrote, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And check this out. It is said that silversmiths, when they're doing this crucible thing with the silver ore, they put it in and they heat it up until it melts. And as it does, the impurities, they rise to the surface and they are skimmed off by the silversmith. And this process is repeated over and over until the silversmith can look down and see his own reflection in the silver. I think some of you know where I'm going with this. In the same way, God uses trials of life to remove our impurities, to make us more like Jesus Christ, which means Christ looks down from his throne in heaven and sees his people in the crucibles of life, and he sees himself being formed in them. Now, I think we can recognize a lot of problems. I'll list a few. The problem we often have regarding God bringing us into his crucible is that, is that we often disagree with God's assessment of us. I do not need any refining from you right now, God, okay? Or, listen, this is where I often find myself. Or we, we know we're not the people we ought to be and need to be. We know we have anger issues or lust issues, or envy issues, or forgiveness issues, but we want more time to fix it on our own, apart from God, which means what? It won't happen. But when we understand the importance of God purifying us, then things begin to change. As Hezekiah discovers, God doesn't bring us through the crucible just for our sakes. No, he brings us through the crucible for his sake, for the glory of his name. He brings us through the crucible of, of personal transformation so that the world sees what? More of Christ in us. And so we need steadfast courage for God to do this work in us. The gospel calls us to a steadfast courage as God makes us to be more like Christ. That's what we're going to look at this morning under five headings. Don't worry, they're going to go fast. And they all begin with P. How about that, huh? huh? Problems, prayer, perspective, promises, and a postscript. First, problems. Big idea here is this. When we commit to follow Christ with daring trust, the problems we face will persist. So we need steadfast faith. Our text here is verses 8 through 13. <clears throat> Uh, the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning uh, Terhaka, king of Cush, he had set out to fight against you. A rumor, remember that? And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, the king of Judah. 
All right, here's the message. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed? Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who are in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharaim, the king of Hena, or the king of Iva? Now, what's going on here? Uh, we remember from last week, the, the two verses right before our passage, um, the Lord told Hezekiah something. He says, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you've heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. And here we go. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Right? That was last week. A mere rumor, right? And so we see it happening. There's this rumor, right? Uh, in verses 8 through 9, the Rapshake, who's a, the trusted field commander, right? Um, he's got lots of stars on his, on his, on his uh, uniform. Um, he's the Rapshake for the king. And he took his army um, and withdrew um, from the city because they had heard a rumor uh, that there was, that the Egyptians were coming up to battle. And at that time, Sennacherib realizes, if you can look at ancient records, Sennacherib's army was spread thin. And he realized that this is not the time to go fight against Egypt. And so the rumor has him moving back home. Mere words, a rumor. This tells us what? God is on the move to deliver his people. The Lord has obviously put a spirit in Sennacherib that caused him to fear and to fume over a rumor. God is already on the move, but what? But it doesn't necessarily appear that way to Hezekiah. King Sennacherib and the Rabshakeh fire off a threatening warning meant to distress Hezekiah. You know, he's, verses 10 through 13, the Assyrian commander, he warned Hezekiah, do not trust God to deliver you, even though we're like withdrawing right now, <laughs> you know. And then he reminds them how all the Assyrian kings had just killed off everybody they fought against. Nobody knows. I can hardly pronounce the names of these kings. Nobody knows who they are, right? Because the Assyrians demolished them. And the Assyrians went through all of Judah, 39 cities destroyed. And now they're, but now they're on the run. And so at this time, though, King Hezekiah is, no, is most likely he's entertaining thoughts. He is a little bit scared. He's wondering if perhaps his name is going to be added to that long list of kings who had been butchered by Sennacherib. What does this tell us? This tells us that the problems we can face persist for long after we turn to God with daring trust. God keeps us in his crucible, working on us and in us, and this is normal. Listen, this should neither surprise us nor upset us. Our battle against sin is like paddling upstream. It's hard. We tire easily. We are tempted to stop paddling and let the stream take us back to where we were. 
And listen, until the day you die or until the day Christ returns, this is the reality of the Christian life. This is normal. And so it takes more than daring trust to begin to fight against the battle of sin. It requires steadfast courage to press on towards greater holiness. And where does one receive courage to press on? Is it found inside us? Or must it come from outside? It comes from outside. It's a work of God in us. And Hezekiah shows us that this comes through prayer. God's grace is changing Hezekiah into a man of prayer. How do we know this? Well, do you recall last week when Hezekiah responded to the Rabshakeh? Um, he was told either to surrender or the people of Jerusalem would be eating their own poop and drinking their own pee. Remember that? And what did Hezekiah do? He sent officials to Isaiah so that Isaiah would talk to God and get a word from God and bring it back to his officials, back to Hezekiah. But now what does Hezekiah do? He bypasses all that and goes straight to the temple and prays directly to God. And it's not just the fact that Hezekiah prays, but how he prays. See, he prays for God's glory to be seen in the world. Verses 14 through 20. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it, the letter, before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you, you alone, of all the kingdoms of earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open up your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. Here we go. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Last week, we saw that Hezekiah was both trusting the Lord and trusting mercenaries from Egypt, right? You ever do this in your own life? You know, thanks, Lord, but I'm going to do this myself, right? We can be that way too. But now Hezekiah is trusting in God alone, and his prayers are focused on God and God's glory. Hezekiah is now living a God-centered life. He is no longer centered upon himself and his needs. He's concerned with the glory of God. That's what we see in verse 20. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. Notice Hezekiah is not praying, Lord, why are you allowing this to happen to me? He's praying, Lord, will you not glorify yourself in this? Oh, that we would pray that way. Steadfast courage is produced in us when we understand that this world, with all its problems, is not about us. 
Hezekiah is learning how to answer the question, why is God here? He is understanding that God is not here to service our selfish whims and passions, but to display his glory in our salvation. Ray Ortland Jr. draws this helpful application for us. He writes, Have you come to realize how the God-centeredness of God is good news for you? That is, God is concerned with his own glory in this world. Don't you see? This opens a new definition of happiness. Happiness is God being God to you. Stop praying. Lord, I want you to make my life better. Lord, I want you to make my husband or my wife better. <laughs> I want my children to behave. I want an ideal job. When you pray this way, he writes, you can only end up frustrated because God will not subordinate himself to any human agenda. Instead, start praying, Lord, I just want you to be God to me. I want my life with my problems to show the world that you save sinners. My friends, the people in this world live to show others their own glory. We know this. We live in the Hamptons. <laughs> On my way here, Ferrari. <laughs> and I was like, uh, nope, I'm going to church. I wasn't going to catch them anyway, right? I wasn't on my motorcycle. But when we live with steadfast courage and as God transforms us to be more alive in Christ, we show the world God's glory in us. So let me ask you, is that good enough for you? God's glory in you being displayed to this world. That is our life. That is our calling. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so then this becomes the focus of our prayer. God, display your glory in my fragile, broken, problem-filled life. That's the prayer. Now for the perspective. Now, do you see how God responds to Hezekiah's prayer? Of course not. You haven't read the text yet but he responds by giving Hezekiah perspective from heaven. Isn't this often what we need, the big picture? When we understand God's perspective, we are enabled by God to live with steadfast courage. Now, what I'm saying here isn't that we know God's perspective with every little detail of why we're in this crucible. No, we see the big picture that God is sovereign and he's in control, and that's a good enough answer for us. God responds to Hezekiah's prayer beginning in verse 21 by giving him heavenly perspective. The king of Assyria, Sennacherib, thinks he has no rivals on earth. But God tells Hezekiah that he has put a hook in Sennacherib's nose, all right, and a bridle in his mouth. In other words, my sovereign hand is upon Sennacherib, but he pridefully has no idea. Verse 21 through 24, and then verse um, 28 and 29. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you. 
the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice, sent a cherub, and lifted your eyes to the heights? Answer, against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up the heights of the mountain to the far recesses of Lebanon to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest height, its most fruitful forest. And skipping down to verse 28, God is saying to him, I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put a hook in your nose, sounds painful, and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. Senator Cherub is clueless to, as to whom he's picked a fight with, right? All the other kings that he has battled and have fallen against, under, uh, fallen against him under his might. But when you pick a fight with God's people, you are, in fact, picking a fight with God himself. Senator Cherub, believe, Senator Cherub believes that nothing can stop him. You know, this is pride. Pride makes you think that nobody or nothing compares to you, that you are above others, they are below you. God gave Hezekiah proper perspective. Senator Cherub thinks he rules the world. God says, I rule Senator Cherub. This is what we call the divine sovereignty of God. Google it if you want. <laughs> uh, it can be really hard to wrap your head around, but what it means is nothing happens apart from God's will. Nothing. And listen, is it not true? When we're in deep in the crucible, we often do not know exactly why God has us where he has us. But one thing we must know is he's in control. That's the perspective we need. We don't need to know why or how this is all going to work out. We just need to know he's in control. But also note this. How does the Lord begin his response to Hezekiah? This is so good. With these words. Because you prayed to me. Which begs the question, what if Hezekiah did not pray? God implies that he is responding to human prayer. So if Hezekiah had not prayed, the Lord would not have sovereignly responded. What does this tell us? That two seemingly contradictory things must come together in our minds as best as possible. God is sovereign, and our human actions matter. We see this in our salvation. God chose his people from before time began. Read Ephesians 1. <laughs> and we are humanly responsible to respond to the gospel. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility in our minds, they do not seem to belong together, but in God's mind, they are perfectly compatible. How are we to respond? My friends, this should humble us and it should give us great courage. 
And it should give us confidence to pray, right? In fact, Mom, this should convince you to pray. Remember the words from the book of James. You do not have. Why? Because you did not ask. I could just get that into my thick skull. Mark Middlecoff is always so quick to go off in his own power and strength without even consulting the Lord. I'm a fix-it man. I'm pretty good at fixing things. But that's pride. It's not humility. So this is the proper perspective we must have if we're to live with steadfast courage for God's glory. We must delight in the fact that God is in control. He is sovereign, and he responds to our prayers. Now for the promises. Earlier, God told Hezekiah that he opposes the proud. Now in verses 30 to 35, he says, I give grace to the humble, and I'm going to bless you, I promise. Here's what we read, verses 30 through 35. And this shall be a sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself. In other words, it wasn't planted in the ground. And in the second year, what springs from that? Then in the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnants of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return and he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David, which of course is a allusion to um, the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 30 to 35, God promises blessing to Hezekiah and his people. Why? What is going on? Well, think about it. it like in the war in Ukraine. Ukraine is, what, what's the percentage of grain comes out of Ukraine for the whole world? It's like a lot, right? Somebody give me an answer. What is it? 15? I think it's more than that. I'll double that. Who wants it? No. It's a lot. But during the war, they, they weren't able to plant or barely able to ship out what grain they had. That's what is worrying Hezekiah. God knows that even though the Assyrians have withdrawn, there's two problems that threaten the people, food and the possible return of the Assyrians. In 702 BC, the Assyrians began their invasion of Judah. And so crops were not planted. Now it's 701 B.C. And God says, don't worry. Even though you didn't sow, you will reap a harvest. You won't be able to plant for two years, but that's okay. I've got you covered. I'm going to feed you. And, and you do not need to worry about Sennacherib coming back. Please understand what God is saying through Isaiah. God is saying that he gives grace to the humble. When we live for God's glory and when we pray for God to be glorified in us, he blesses us. Not that he owes us. Not that we earn our blessings. 
No, they flow because of God's nature. God is a God of blessing. It's in his nature to shower his people with blessing. Do you believe that? And remember the situation with the nation. Remember how messed up they've been? For many generations, the people of God took the grace of God for granted. They used God as a good luck charm. They strayed from the word of God and from the ways of God. And God was the very last person that they would turn to for help. Yet it was God who brought them into the crucible and he turned up the heat to humble his people. That is the reason why the people finally turned in trust to God. In other words, the people had nothing upon which to prop themselves. And they finally understood this. And that is when the grace of God began to flow down. God gives grace to the humble. It's okay to be needy and dependent upon God. My friends, this is not how Christ comes to us. We come to realize that whatever belief in God that we had, it was really just a ploy to use him for our own advantage. But then God begins to work in us, and we begin to become humbled before him, and we see who Christ is finally. And we cry out for God to save us in Christ. This is who we are, my friends. We are sinners saved by grace. We are sinners not getting what we deserve. But instead, God's showering us with blessings upon blessings from heaven. Isaiah ends chapter 37 with a short postscript. It's amazing how short it is. Two important events are depicted in just three short verses at the end of this chapter. Let's read them. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived in Nineveh. And he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god. Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Erashadon, his son, reigned in his place. In just one, one verse, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers are struck down in their sleep. Not a sword or a shield was raised. The Lord defeated them with just one angel. Then Senator Cherub slinks back home with his tail between his legs. And we read that like Isaiah, he went into the temple, or like Hezekiah, he went into the temple of his God. But he was met by his two sons. One of them had a sword. He killed him. Just like God had promised. A couple of quick observations. One, just a very few number of verses were used to cover the victories of God. Why is that? Because the hard work was already done in the long passages. 
in the crucible. And two, Sennacherib's death, it wasn't right away, right? It was actually 20 years later. He left Jerusalem in 701 B.C. He died in 681 B.C. This story reminds us of how long it can take for the promises of God to be fulfilled. And it encourages us to be faithful to the hard work that our Lord calls us into. And it empowers us to persevere with steadfast courage. Ultimately, the story of Hezekiah points us to Christ. Think about it. Christ entered his crucible, the cross, for us. No, not because he needed purification. No, the cross is the crucible upon which our sin, our impurities are burned off on Christ. On the cross, Jesus entered the crucible that we deserve. He took the penalty. Every sin, everyone, past, present, and yes, future. That is how much God loves you. And that is how astonishing salvation really is. Jesus took all your sin on himself, on the cross, and bore all the judgment for that sin, if you would but trust him and place your faith in him, this work becomes finished for you. And so, Christian, know this. Whatever crucible God has brought you in or will bring you in, it does not compare to the crucible that Jesus endured for you. And so, listen. It's really important that you understand this. When God takes us through a crucible, it is not punishment for some sin. No, God is addressing your sin as a good earthly father would, as we read earlier. He does not overlook the sins of his children, but he disciplines them so that they will come to live beautiful, glorifying lives. So God isn't punishing you, he is purifying you. And so let us not despise this work of grace. Instead, let us embrace this work of God's grace in us. God has made us to be alive in Christ so that we may live to display his glory on this grace-starved planet. And so as you come forward for communion, Have this picture in your mind. Jesus is looking down at you into your crucible, which is your life. And he sees himself being reflected back up. And he rejoices. So let us rejoice too. Father, we admit that when we find ourselves out of the frying pan and into the fire, we assume that something broke down. We assume that you um, were on vacation, that somehow this slipped through the cracks. How foolish we are. Your word shows us that you're in the midst with your people 
while we are in the crucible and you have purposes for this. Make us more like Christ and to show the world, a hurting world, what it looks like to have Christ formed in your people. So help us to have a new perspective today, we pray. As we gather around this supper, may we be reminded of your ongoing work in us to make us more like Christ. Amen.